0: Well, as a church, we are committed to missions not because we think it's just a cool thing to do. We're committed to missions because God himself is committed to missions. Think about this. God could have chosen not to disturb his peace and quiet and leave us to ourselves. But he sent his son to reveal himself to us to teach us the way to find our way back to Him. And so this morning in our passage, in Luke chapter 14, it will become readily apparent when we get to the parable that Jesus tells that God is indeed Himself committed to missions. However, in order to properly understand the parable, we need to recognize that there are two conversations that Jesus has immediately preceding this parable, that he tells to the host of a party and to his guests. And so my prayer this morning as we look at this parable, uh, as we look at the Scripture and look at its teaching and its surrounding context, that we'll see several very practical ways that Scripture would encourage us, individually as a church, to grow our hearts in our love for missions. Now, if there's one thing that is clear to me, Northside is a church that has a heart for missions. We have two in Africa this morning, uh, making their way back sometime later this week, uh, back to us, visiting with the Petros. We have a team leaving first thing in the morning for India. We have a church that has been extraordinarily generous, humblingly generous in giving to missions. But I ask this question. Even if Northside loves missions, telling people around the world about the fame of Jesus Christ's name, do You think we could still grow perhaps a little bit in our love for missions, in our commitment to missions? I don't know that there's any church in the world that, that could not grow in their heart for God's mission just a little bit more. And so I invite you to join me in Luke chapter 14. We'll begin in verse 7 because in verse 7, Jesus does something that he doesn't always do. He tells us why he's about to tell the parable. And in Luke 14 verse 7, it says this, And Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Basically, Jesus is uh, invited uh, by a Pharisee to a Pharisee dinner party. I have no idea what that would look like, um, but Jesus is not impressed and the party hasn't even really started yet. He notices that as people are walking in, They are sizing up the room and figuring out, who do I want to sit by? What's going to be the best business deal for me? How am I going to rub shoulders with the right person? And and quite honestly, they're asking, how do I look out for number one? This doesn't sound like the kind of dinner party I would enjoy. Because they are basically finding ways to climb over each other to have the place of honor. And so Jesus... You've got to be real careful when you invite Jesus to a party. Because even though he's not the guest of honor, he feels the freedom to address everyone that the host has invited. That's the host's job. And Jesus kindly, sovereignly, inserts himself into the conversation. And so he tells us, Wow, don't like how these folks are handling their party etiquette. So let's tell them something. And then in the run-up to the parable he makes two statements that are both very challenging comments. First, he makes comments to the guests. And basically what Jesus tells them is get a little bit of humility. We see this in verses 8 through 11. Jesus said to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace and shame, you proceed to occupy the very last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Jesus in this uh, instruction is describing a typical Near Eastern meal. As guests arrive, because of their pride, they all clamor to sit at the head table. Now, the little RSVP, little flag, isn't sitting there with their name on it, but they're just going to bump that out of the way, cozy right on up where they want to. And basically, in an ancient Near Eastern uh, dinner arrangement, the table would be kind of set in a block U-shape. And for each of those tables, if there was a table here, a table here, and a table here, the person who sat in the middle of that table, that was position number one. That was the place of great honor. And then the person who sat to the right of the person in the middle of the table was position two. And the person who sat to the left was position three. And so they would figure this out all the way around the table. Here's the problem. Let's say he had 20 guests. There were only five center spots. You can almost imagine them trying to, you know, elbow their way into the table to get someone out of the space because, hey, it's me. I deserve this spot more than you do. And so Jesus says, don't be so presumptuous. What if someone more distinguished than you comes in and you have to be asked to move, but because everyone else has already picked their seats, guess which is the only seat that's left? the very last one. And you'll be embarrassed, you'll be shamed, you will be dishonored. And so Jesus' instructions here on humility are not some kind of reverse way of being prideful. Well, let's show everyone how important I am by taking the last seat, and then he, everyone can see the host moving me. It's not that. Jesus is actually telling people to have this attitude Where everybody else is more important than you. This is not some reverse methodological strategy to puff yourself up. It is not some uh, methodological strategy to subtly climb the corporate ladder. Oh, don't go sit at the first spot. Sit at the last spot and eventually work your way up. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. That's false humility. That's not true humility. So you've heard the saying. It has been said that humble people don't think less of themselves. They just spend more time thinking about God and others, and so think of themselves less. They don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. And people who are prideful are always thinking about themselves. So what Jesus is doing here is encouraging a genuine valuing of others over self. And in truth, when all of us stand before God, what do we have to brag about? When we stand before God and we're going to go, hey, you know, have you, have you checked out the next guy? I'm, I'm better than him here. Yeah, but he's better than you here. There is no boasting before God. And so Jesus has this challenging word to the guests at the party. But secondly, he challenges the host in verses 12 through 14. It says, he also went on to say to the one who had invited him. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I I have to stop and ask, which party would you rather be at? The party with the rich and the famous, or the party with the poor, crippled, lame, and blind? To be truthful, I don't know that we would enjoy either party. People that are full of themselves sure aren't fun to be with. Sometimes it's really difficult to be around people who are suffering. What in the world is Jesus saying here? And why is he saying, when you have a party, doesn't a party by definition mean inviting your friends? And Jesus is counterintuitively saying, don't invite them. Don't invite your neighbors. Don't invite people of means. Well, I think what we're getting at here is Jesus is saying that When we we have a party, when we have a reception, we have to practice hospitable hospitality. That's a little play on words. We have to practice hospitable. I had to practice that because I kept saying hospital hospitality. Hospitable hospitality. What do I mean by this? Well, I did a little word study this week. And it's, it's an interesting fact that I didn't know, but it makes perfect sense. I should have figured this out. The word hospital and hospitality are related. Did you know that? I mean, they don't just sound alike. They actually have the same Latin root. So a hospital does what? Cares for people who have a problem. Hospitality is caring, out of your own resources, caring for people who do not have as much as you. Wow. That's kind of different. Hospitals care for people who need help. And typically, in the early days of the hospital, they were specifically, in Europe, caring agencies for foreigners. Why for foreigners? Well, if you lived in a village, the village doc typically took care of you. But if you were not a part of a family, if you were a sojourner passing through and you had no family to care for you, you had no access to the village doctor because you you knew no one, the hospital became a place for people passing through to receive care because they had no one else in their circumstance to care for them. Pretty fascinating. It was expected for normal people that their immediate family and the village physician would care for their own, and so hospitals were originally designed for the poor and for pilgrims. And so ultimately, when you look at the Latin root, the word host, to host a party, hospice, hostel, hotel, and hospital are all related. They all come from the same word group, and they're all connected to this idea of providing care to those who need it most. So here's the the kicker question. How hospitable are you? Are you like this man in this parable who only invites your friends, people who can pay you back? Or are you actually taking from your resources and giving it to someone who has no opportunity to pay you back? Man, that's a challenge. Contrast what's being said here with the way we practice hospitality. And most often... Anytime we use the word, we're talking about social events in which we have friends and family over. Jesus would say, that's fine. You need to love your friends and your family. That's not hospitality. Being a good host, being able to throw a good party, has more to do with giving freely of your resources to people who can't repay you than having fun with people of the same social standing. And so we need to recognize the difference. And it's at this very point that Jesus is challenging the host to be truly hospitable. Uh, Loving and hosting those who love you and are your friends is nice, but it's not morally commendable. He says it's nice for you to do things for your friends. It is morally commendable when you do things for people who can't do anything back for you so then we get to verses 15 through 20 where Jesus begins with these introductory comments to now tell a story. He's talked to the guests. He's talked to the host. And now he tells a parable. Look with me at verses 15 through 20. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Now, you know that last one's a lie. What wife doesn't like to go to a party? Mama ain't cooking tonight. <clears throat> Here's the situation. As we look at the parable, it starts off with a party uh, a, a goer making kind of a strange comment. Jesus had said all of this about um, uh, being humble and being intentionally hospitable. And then you get this guy that apparently doesn't like where Jesus is going with this, his teaching and tries to change the conversation. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, all right, you're irked at me, aren't you? Um, and the comment is basically, won't it be great in the kingdom when it's only the good people that are all together? People like us Pharisees. It'll be great when we have that potluck in the sky and we don't have to worry about all this rabble. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, um, I got a little story for you. And so he tells a story that provides a very dramatic contrast with the attitude of the party goers. So we see a man who's giving a dinner. And it was customary in those days, kind of like with a wedding, to send out an RSVP in advance. If you've ever uh, married off your daughters, you know that you've got to buy cards, and then you've got to buy cards for the cards, and then the thing that goes inside, and then the little foldy paper thing that goes inside. It's expensive. And then you send it out with a self-stamped address card to come back. Wow, you're paying a lot of money just for the cards to know who's going to come. Well, that's basically what they did when there was a big dinner party here. There was an RSVP that was sent. And obviously, everyone originally accepted the invitation. We know this because as the story goes on, as the time for the party was at hand, the, the guest sends his escort to the people who, you know, shows up maybe with his top hat and his cane, white gloves, tuxedo, knocks on the door, and offers his arm to the lady and says, I will escort you to the party. They have not said anything about their not attending till the very last minute. And they start to make excuses. And so, listen, Jesus doesn't make any comment. The scriptures don't make any comment on the validity of the excuses. You know, are these good excuses? That's not the point. The point is that they made excuses at all. And in Near Eastern culture, this was a major offense. What's about to happen, though, at this point, is where the main teaching point comes in this parable. And it is a kicker. Because what Jesus is about to say is that those who appear in line for blessing don't make it to the table at all. And those who were not originally invited are the ones that get to enjoy the party. Wow. He's saying this in the midst of being a guest at a dinner party. Look at verses 21 through 23. And the slave came back and reported this to his master, and the head of the household became angry, and he said to the slave, "Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind, blind and lame." There's an interlude. verse 22, And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. It's interesting to note that just as with the original partygoers there were two invitations that were sent. The RSVP and the escort knocking on the door. When those folks have refused and the master sends his slave out to gather others in, there are two invitations, aren't there? There's the first gathering of people within the city, and then there's the second gathering out to the highways and the hedges outside of the city to bring people in so that the house may be filled Many people see this from a biblical theological stance as the first invitation being to the Jews. And now the second invitation being to the Gentiles, people outside of the city. The slave is told specifically to make them come in, to compel them to come in, to urge them to come in. Well, who were these people? These were people who had no relationship with the master. If you get an invitation to a party from a person you did not know, Maybe shyness is not the right word. Would you be perhaps a little slow to accept? And that's why the slave is told to compel, to urge him, to say, yes, we want you here for this party. And then in verse 24, Jesus concludes the parable, and Jesus removes the need for anyone to guess as to what he means. Uh, Whereas the man in verse 15 said, hey, it's going to be great to break bread at the future consummation. That will be grand. Jesus says this in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Jesus is replying to the man that made the comment by saying, Yes, that future heavenly meal will be awesome. If you're invited, yes, it will be great. Don't assume that you have an invitation. self righteous prideful man. And so Jesus is telling his pharisaical dinner guest that those who do not become a part of the kingdom now will not have the opportunity to become a part of the kingdom then. It's very interesting. And the question related to this series of stories, stories and parable, is what in the world does this have to do with missions? Well, I think there are three very simple, very simple things that I think we can just ask ourselves about our attitude towards God's plan for the nations that I think are helpful. Number one, I would say this. Missions-minded people are humble. Missions-minded people are humble in their attitude toward self and others. They think of others first. This whole episode in Luke chapter 14 is preceded by a Sabbath controversy. The very beginning of the chapter, there's a man who has a... um, They call it dropsy. He has some kind of physical condition and it happens to be on the Sabbath when he bumps into Jesus. And Jesus, not one to pay attention to the rules of man, heals him and it creates a controversy. Today in our day and age, Sabbath controversies may not be things that we deal with, but the need for humility and compassion will be with us until Jesus comes back. It's just a truth. And pride can make you so self-obsessed that the only time you think about others is to pity them and to feel better about yourself. That is not the kind of attitude that Jesus is calling us to have. You can never be missions-minded without truly considering the state of other people. Missions is not a religious vacation. It is understanding that God has commissioned us as his ambassadors to take his word of truth to our own zip code, and to the very ends of the earth. And so missions-minded people are humble in their attitude towards self and humble in their attitude towards others. But secondly, missions-minded people are, here's my wordplay, intentionally hospitable. Missions-minded people are intentionally hospitable in their invitation. They will invite the less fortunate, They will invite the unimportant. And a good litmus test for a church when it comes to evaluating its hospitality is to ask this simple question. How many activities do we have that are outwardly focused? Not self-serving, not internally directed. How many activities are truly outwardly focused? Now, in your bulletin, you'll see several announcements around the holidays. Listen, people come to church on Easter. They may not come any other time, but we actually do things for the community around Easter because we want to be outward-focused. There are tons of volunteer opportunities. There are the opportunities to donate to help underwrite this uh, Easter extravaganza thing that we do. But to ask ourselves the question, are we doing enough to be outwardly focused, is a good question for a church to ask. Uh, There are churches all along the spectrum, some that never do anything for anyone outside their building, and some that do a lot. And the question is, as we explore our faithfulness, what do we want to do differently? Perhaps we want to do everything that we're doing right now. Perhaps we want to do everything we're doing right now plus something more. But we have to be intentionally hospitable, doing things for people that will never do anything for us that's the definition of true service what does someone who is intentionally hospitable do they spend money on the needy they throw a party and they get they, they don't get the cheap party tray because the blind the weak and the lame are coming over well you know if it was my sunday school class i'd get the deluxe party tray but since it's the riffraff i'm going to get you know cheese balls <laughs> whatever celery tray with peanut butter. Wow, big spender. Now, people who are intentionally hospitable spend money on the needy. Who are the needy? Well, certainly it's the poor and disadvantaged around us. We have the opportunity with Bethel next door to support their men's shelter. Uh, we regularly are finding ways to support Hope House, which is a, a food uh, ministry for people who are hurting. But it's, it's more than just the poor and socioeconomically disadvantaged. Um, it's the spiritually needy. And there's a facade around our spiritual need. We think that if you drive a BMW, well, certainly you're not spiritually needy. You don't need anything. You're well put together. You got it all figured out. You're self-made man. If you don't struggle paying your rent or your mortgage, well, then you're not not needy. Spiritually needy are all around us. And not just here in South Carolina. They're all over our world. We have a missions team that just went to Kentucky to work with a ministry that specifically is working with people kind of in the coal mining region of Kentucky that are um, dirt poor, really struggling. And that ministry provides assistance for them. But as we talk about the spiritual needy, I want you to check out a couple of these charts. I think there's three of them, and you may... I may not be able to read it, <coughs> Um This is a brand new chart from January 2013 from the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And basically what you'll see here is it is the global status of evangelical Christianity. This is not information simply about Southern Baptists. This is the status of evangelical Christianity worldwide. Anyone that loves and obeys Jesus and his word is included in these statistics. People who are evangelical believers. And basically, you're going to see a couple maps here in just a second that will. Uh, let's go back one. Uh, I want to go over the chart here. You'll see that basically the descriptions here go from red to green. And the redder it is, the less influence there is. So when you get to the zero, that means there are no evangelical Christians, churches, no access to anything Christian in print resources video, audio resource, or human resource. There are zero Christians in the area. There's none. You go from uh, one, uh, the second one down, that's less than 2% uh, evangelical. There might be some evangelical resources available, but there's no active church planning within the past two years. There's been nothing that's been happening. And you go down the list until you get down to level six, which which is kind of that uh, olive green color, which means there's greater than or equal to Uh, 10% evangelical influence. Now, let's look at this next map. This is a global map, and uh, you'll have to forgive the size of our screen here. Uh, I don't know that you'll be able to see very well exactly what's happening. But as of January 2013, this is a snapshot worldwide of the distribution of evangelical Christianity. And you see some pretty amazing things. You see over in parts of Indonesia and New Guinea, that there is, are tons of evangelical influence. Pockets throughout Africa, pockets through India, pockets through South America. And what happens when you get to North America? Tons of Christians. The only, the, there, there's no white color. The white color. The uncolored area up there is just because there's not as much population in the Midwest. You see it, tons in the South. You see tons of green on the West Coast. Does that surprise anyone? The way we talk about Hollywood and California and there's Christians out there greater than 10%. Here's the thing that is amazing. Let's go to the next slide. This slide represents the lowest rung of access to Christian materials. And listen, there's, there's, there's a couple little dots in North America. There's some dots in... Uh, In South America, kind of sub saharan Africa, which is mostly Muslim, very difficult to get into. Um, It will be a long time before those areas are reached because of access issues. But but do you see what I see? Where all of the world's lostness, the vast majority of it is found. It's found in India. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with uh, Jerry Sosby uh, just a week or so ago. He went to India... When did he say, 1989, 1990? There were two missionary units in the entire country of India in 1990. Two. To reach the largest mission field in the world. Two. So when we talk about the who, and as we talk about Not just where the needy are when it comes to clothes and food and shelter. But when we talk about the spiritually needy, friends, we have them all around us. We can probably throw a rock and hit a house of a spiritually needy person. But when we talk about the spiritually needy in America, how many churches do you think there are in Rock Hill? There's 70 Southern Baptist churches in our association. You count other evangelical churches, there's probably 300 churches that believe the gospel in Rock Hill. Someone who is spiritually needy probably, in Rock Hill, probably doesn't have to walk more than half a mile to get to a church where they can have access to the gospel. When you look at this map, how many thousands of miles would you have to travel for the hope Of perhaps hearing the gospel. No access. No access. And so, as we look at this map representing Christian influence, how does South Carolina compare to India? South Carolina is green, it's growing, there's influence. And while there may be things happening in our country to mitigate Christian influence, we have Christian influence in a way that other places would die to have. Even just the Bibles that we have in our pews would be a precious resource to people around the world. And so we go here because of access to the gospel. There, there, are, there are people in parts of the country that may never run into a Christian may never see a Bible. They may never hear of Jesus. And third, when we talk about being growing in our missions-mindedness, missions-minded people are committed to the fulfillment of God's plan. Missions-minded people are committed to the fulfillment of God's plan. And I thought perhaps this morning as we talk about missions and, and pray for God to break our hearts for lostness, that perhaps someone who has committed to missions would be good for, good for you to hear from. So we were going to try to work out a way to Skype live with the Petros here this morning, and because of technical issues, we're not able to do it. But We've got a short video that we'd like to share, and I'd love for you to hear David's heart about missions. Muli Uli from Lendazi. That means hello from Lundazi,
1: Zambia. Greetings to our brothers and sisters in Christ at Northside Baptist Church from Lindazi Zambia. I don't know if you can hear it or not, but the call to prayer is um, going off for the Muslims here. And um, it's just a constant reminder of how grateful we are for you, our, our forever family at Northside Baptist Church. We are so grateful, first of all, for your prayers. Um, they support us, they sustain us, and we have no idea how much encouragement it is to know that you're praying for us. And we're also so grateful for the encouraging notes and cards that we get, the packages, and uh, most recently the bundles and just huge bags of love you sent through uh, Leslie and Marianne. Thank you so much for just constantly supporting us and encouraging us and lifting us up and spoiling us, quite frankly. Greetings to our brothers and sisters in Christ at Northside Baptist. I'm so honored to be with you this morning. Pastor Scott sent me an email asking if we would make a video as to why we decided to come overseas and serve in international missions rather than remaining in the States. Let me first start off by saying that for the body of believers, it's a both and proposition. We reach in the United States and we reach internationally. Uh, But for us personally, Uh, feeling the call of God on our lives, we decided that uh, international service is where we needed to be. You know, I I know a lot of people say that we should just focus on missions in America. There are plenty of people in America that need the gospel message. And there is truth to that statement. There are many people in America that don't know the gospel message and need to uh, know that message and be discipled into maturity in Christ. But it's also true that from beginning to end of the Bible, from cover to cover, that God has a heart for the nations. And when you consider that the United States only has 5% of the world's population, that means 95% of the world is outside of the United States, and we can't ignore them. Uh, Sometimes I feel like we're the little child that's playing hide-and-seek and and who sits and covers his face thinking, if I can't see the person looking for me, uh, then then they can't see me. Well, we we can't cover our eyes to the fact that 95% of the world lies outside of our borders, and we have to reach them with the Gospel message. So why did we pack everything up and head to Africa? Well, ultimately, it was we felt like that was God's will for our life. But kind of laying behind that, two streams of thought. One is that I feel like God has uniquely gifted our family by His grace to live overseas in a different culture and cross those cultural barriers and be able to communicate the gospel and live long-term in another culture. And I know that's not for everyone. God hasn't gifted all the body of believers in the same way. But I do think that... Regardless of our giftedness in that area, He has called all of us to be active, maybe in a short-term role in international missions, but He has called us all to be active. The other part of that is just the sheer lostness uh, of the world. Where we serve among the Tumbuka people, it's estimated that over 99% uh, don't know the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're here, because there is just such a lostness among this people group. But the Temuka are just one of hundreds of people groups that don't know the true gospel message and that we're commanded as believers in Christ to take the gospel to. We love you, Northside Baptist, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. God bless you.
0: Well, I know on behalf of David and Heather that they are very grateful for our love and support. And so thank you for being a church that supports missions by loving the Petro family. I don't want you to hear something that I, I don't think he finished. The statistic: um, the United States is five percent of the world's population. Guess how guess how much of the world's Christian resources we have? Ninety-five percent. So five percent of the world's population has ninety-five percent of the world's Christian literature, resources, training material, human resources we are spoiling ourselves while other people are dying to hear. And so we have to be committed to the fulfillment of God's plan. Just like the master in Luke 14, he was going to have his table filled. The question was, was it going to be the people he originally invited? Or was it going to be the people who were invited second? God will not be foiled By man's rejection, the places at the kingdom table will be filled and God's plan will find its fulfillment nonetheless. And if those who are offered first refuse, God will draw others in. And let me speak really clearly here, just in our last closing moments. Why India? Why this for Missions for Northside? I think there's several things. We have a responsibility as a church, to make sure that we strongly support those who have gone out from among our midst, the Petro family. We're doing that right now by sending folks from our midst there to encourage and help them to get settled in. The first two years of missionary service are terrible, because you're not allowed to do a whole lot because you have to learn the language and you have to learn the culture. And you have a very short leash until you can speak with some degree of fluency. Uh, out and about so they are in school 24 hours a day until they can get the language and cultural acquisition to be effective on their own without a translator they they really especially need our encouragement now because that's what they're in the midst of is learning a language and being frustrated at how long it takes and how slow their comprehension is we have a we have a responsibility as a uh, local church to make sure that we do everything we can to support them and to support them well. We also, as you, had the chance to look at the maps. We have an opportunity to respond to a cry that the IMB has made. If The International Mission Board pulled every missionary off the field and put them all in India. It would be a millennium before we really see the fruit that we'd like to see. There is no way that we can, apart from a move of God, train enough missionaries, or support enough missionaries to meet the need where there is the deepest lostness. IMB has asked for churches to enter into strategic partnership to come and work alongside missionaries to help penetrate the last, biggest, most dense pocket of lostness that there is on the planet. I've had the opportunity to go to India before. Um, Ed and... uh, Ed and David Bennett will be leaving with me tomorrow at 7:30 uh, to go for the better part of two weeks to do church planting training there. Um, to speak real honestly, um, it's not a pretty part of the world that we're going to. It's hot. Guys, it, it was 100 degrees the other day, so I haven't told you that. I'm telling you here because I'm safe. Um, <laughs> it, it was close to 100 degrees, you know, and uh, it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, We're going to be in an area where there is very little Christian influence. We will be an oddity. Uh, There may be a slight tinge of hostility. Lives are not threatened, but um, it's illegal to proselytize in India. Um, Now, they know that we're Americans, and Americans are Christians in their mindset. So they know that we're here to tour, but we're here to tell people about Jesus as well. It is not an area that I would choose to go to apart from the fact that I can't I can't look at that map and weep for people who have no opportunity. I grew up in a church. I was an RA Um, If I would have been able to, I probably would have been a GA too. I did it all. I grew up in a youth group where I had the opportunity to be involved in Christian leadership at a young age. I had the opportunity with a dad who loved me and loved Jesus to win all of my friends from my football and my wrestling team to Christ. Um, Had the opportunity to see awesome things. And everything that I have known as a Christian young man is not even on the radar screen for people in a densely populated area that are waiting for someone to come and tell them. So our hope with this trip is that this can begin uh, perhaps a short-term, three-to-five-year strategic partnership where people from within our church will commit to going once a year to train people how to share the gospel how to to gather together as a house church. Listen, you can do it. You don't have to know anything. Uh, David and Ed have been memorizing a 150-page manual for the last four months to be prepared. The preparation will happen. The question is, are you willing to go? There is no more strategic place for us to form that kind of partnership. Yes, indeed, we need to make sure that we are supporting the Petros. We need to send trips there. We have an opportunity as Northside Baptist Church, not some huge megachurch, to push back the darkness if we will be willing. And so as we talk about the how, Acts 1-8 provides the challenge. Jesus says this, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, I don't know why he says both, because then it makes it sound like he's only throwing two things out there. He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's four. That's not a both. Both is two. I think what Jesus is saying, you will be my witnesses both in your own area, and as God gives the opportunity, wherever he takes you overseas. And so we don't want to support international missions to the neglect of our own people. Uh, Certainly not the Petros, and certainly not the lost that are in this community. But do you realize that every time we gather for church, it's an opportunity for a lost person to come to know Jesus? Everything we do, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, is an opportunity for us to do local missions. What opportunities do people have around the world where there are no churches? where there are no opportunities for people to hear the faithful preaching of the word. So friends, I pray that you will pray for us. Um, A trip like this is fraught with so many emotions. Um, Just the foreignness of not being able to read the road signs and perhaps turning down the wrong street, you know. Um, Eating food that, um, if it's spicy going in, (laughs) I'll let you finish that, that, that line. Um, To an area where people are perhaps hostile to Christian witness. But yet there are people that God has there that will believe if people will preach the gospel. And so we pray that you will um, pray for us and pray for God to do a great work in India. Let's pray. Lord, make us mindful that missions does begin at home. We have a responsibility as moms and dads to tell the gospel to our children. We have the responsibility as church members to tell the gospel to our neighbors, to our co-workers, uh, to the people we meet in the supermarket. But Lord, we know from the very beginning of time that you uh, raised up Abraham. You called out Abraham that he might be the father of many and uh, a blessing to all of the nations. Well, Lord, the blessings that only you can give, come through the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll make us very intentional about ministering to the lost and the hurting here around us. But, Lord, make our hearts be broken for the lostness around the world. Help us not to think of missions as an either-or, but see it as a both-and, as David said, Lord. And help us to be eager about um, giving of our resources that people who have none might have the opportunity to hear. Lord, we pray. Uh, we give you thanks in our prayer that we are a church that loves missions. And we can only pray knowing that you're the only one that knows what more we could do. But Lord, we pray that with great faith, knowing that you are a God who seeks to, to, to reach the lost. We ask that you help us to join you in that endeavor. In Amen. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning as we have our invitation, if... Um, Learning to sacrifice of your freedoms and your monies sounds contrary to you. We would love the opportunity to talk about why the gospel makes us willing to give, makes us willing to go. There are those of you here who have been looking for a church that uh, faithfully wants to proclaim and serve the gospel. I think you you may have found that here with Northside Baptist Church. If you're interested in talking about church membership, we'd be glad to receive you at this uh, invitation time as well.